is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me is my co-host, Megan Bojarski. In this episode, Uncle Sam takes over the Disney studio, and Walt becomes a prolific propagandist. As we talk about victory through air power, the first of our maybe slightly notorious uh, Disney movies that are not included on Disney+. Plus. This one did get an official DVD release, which I am holding right now so that Megan can see it. But, you know, you guys can't because podcasting, while podcasting is a visual medium, it's not that visual. We'll try to post it on social media. <laughs> it was part of the Disney Treasures line where they had actually put a lot of the shorts, especially on DVD. And this package includes the feature film Victory Through Our Power, as well as a bunch of the Shorts that were produced as World War II propaganda, and we'll be talking about a few of them on this episode. For these movies that are both obscure and not readily available, we want to try to do a better job of giving a recap than for something like Bambi or Dumbo or Snow White, where people are at least familiar with the basic story for the most part. And if you aren't or you choose to watch it, it's very easy to go and watch it, easier than it ever has been. Megan, do you want to start walking us through the uh, what Victory Through Air Power is actually about? Sure. So Victory Through Air Power, kind of like some of the early cost-cutting movies that we've talked about, kind of alternates between live action and animation. But in this instance, it's all kind of in service of the argument that the United States needs to invest more readily in air power. So specifically, what they kind of go through in the film is a brief history of air power that's actually pretty readily available. And then it goes into the more specific World War II era stuff, which is the stuff that's going to be a little harder for y'all to find. So it goes into specifically how the German and Japanese people are specifically winning because they use air power offensively, specifically discussing the fact that the British had a very strong navy and the French had a very strong army. And neither of those was successful against the air power, at least so says this argument. And thus the key argument is that if we're going to ever beat them, we need to also use air power offensively. So specifically, one of the things that they bring up is the instances where Britain has either not or specifically did use air-to-air -air combat, where the German planes either had the ability to completely blow past all of the British forces or were blocked when planes were really brought in on both sides. So that's kind of the primary argument. The secondary argument really has to do with resources, which basically they argue ocean travel is slow. Specifically, the Germans and the Japanese are able to do most of their stuff very close to home, either through trains or through 
short boat rides, whereas the U.S., to give resources to where it needs to go, basically has to cross half the Earth. And specifically, they then argue that we need to be distributing weaponry and resources through air power, and we need to be blocking the German and Japanese supply lines through air power. Specifically, they really push into the idea that we need to hit the source of power. So it's very much cut the head off the snake, let's attack with as much force as we possibly can, which is something we'll talk about consequences of in a little bit. The other kind of major facet of this movie is that in the book that it's based on, more or less, they argue that every other branch of the U.S. military is useless and stupid, and they got in trouble for that. So in this, they talk about Americans have always been very smart and innovative, and in order to still be smart and innovative, they need to make air power its own force, specifically arguing for the air force to become a thing. At this point in time, it was attached to the army, or to some extent the navy, depending on where the planes were connected. And so they were really arguing for the creation of a distinct air force that had all the resources it needed. All of this was based on the 1942 book, Victory Through Air Power, by Alexander P. de Seversky, who is in the film and gives his thoughts throughout. So that's kind of the long and short, clunky summary of what this movie is. It does a lot of different things that we'll be talking about in more specifics as we go through. But mostly what you need to know is this was a military strategy book that they decided to make into a Disney movie. And as weird as that sounds, it pretty much is as weird as it appears. Um, and we'll dive further into how that came to be and specifically how Disney was working with the armed forces in the United States and in Canada as we delve a little bit further into this episode. Yeah, one of the big points of consensus, at least among the staff, from the various sources I was reading is that Basically, as soon as Pearl Harbor happened, December 7th, 1941, they came to work on Monday the 8th, and it was like a switch had already, had already been flipped. While that was, also, of course, happening across the entire country, it very specifically happened at the Disney Studio building, where the U.S. Army came to Burbank and took it over, in part because of, of some arrangements with Disney, and in part because... Uh, they were next to a Lockheed Martin factory, which was of vital strategic importance. And so it kind of gave the the military an excuse to really have a heavy presence on the Disney lot. Uh, it also led to Seversky filming his, his live action segments for Victory Through Air Power in the middle of the night because the construction sounds from the Lockheed lot were just bleeding into the sound stages no matter what they did. And so they ended up filming all that stuff off hours, basically. And animator Joe Grant, who worked on a couple of things that we'll be talking about today, in an interview with Leonard Malton that is included as a bonus feature on this DVD, basically said you felt almost naked if you weren't in uniform um, by 1941 because there were so many people walking around uh, the lot who were full on in uniform. Yeah, there's a lot of stories that go back to this time period. One in specific that I remember reading was that Walt had scheduled a meeting to discuss finally making a full animation Alice in Wonderland movie on December 7th. And as he was heading into the meeting, Pearl Harbor happened. And then the entire company changed and that movie got pushed off 10 years. 
Now, whether that specific story is true or just kind of fabricated for the mythology is a little bit unclear, but there's definitely this kind of light bulb switch that goes on at this moment. On the point of having to record at night, I will just say that I went to college in an area that had many military bases and actually worked on one for a little while, not during a major war, and you just kind of learn to get used to the explosives. You know, you're doing work and the first day is always terrifying because all of a sudden there's bombs going off, but there's no flashing lights, there's no sirens, and everyone just is moving about their everyday lives. So I imagine that that would be a, a jarring shift from Disney being this kind of corporate paradise to some extent with the fancy rooms for the elites to being complete military zone 24-7, or at least until 3 a.m. when they could finally record. I'm going to ask you about that story again when we get to Mary Poppins, because it will be relevant again. Good to know. <laughs> One of the other big things that we kind of need to talk about before going too much into Disney is that World War II actually had a huge influence on animation, cartoons, and comics as a whole. Specifically, kind of the three big forces that come up in this period of animation history is the introduction of Superman comics, the rise of Dr. Seuss. This is not necessarily the Dr. Seuss that we all know and love, but it is certainly the political cartoonist, Dr. Seuss, and the addition of Bugs Bunny as a major propaganda force. These kind of three main forces started to drive a lot of the kind of public understanding of the war, and Disney had a very critical place within that kind of animated, I, I guess, supremacy during that time period. You had so many people who had been sent off to war, that animation was a lot easier to produce because you didn't need live people as much as you needed people to be able to draw. So we see kind of the rise of those three forces and then a very kind of complex buildup of Disney's different forces to help the war effort. Yeah, so as we mentioned, you know, Disney was right next door to Lockheed, who was kind of involved in fostering a U.S. government contract for the Disney studio to create 32 propaganda shorts for $4,500 each. And this actually saved the company from bankruptcy, allowed them to continue making movies, allowed them to keep as many employees as they could on payroll. But there's a good chance that if the war hadn't broken out when it did, Walt Disney Studios, as we know, it wouldn't have existed. It's one of those things where it, it's that it's that meme with like all the dominoes, and it's like you know France overloading the treaty from the the Treaty of Versailles from the end of World War One with reparations gets us to like Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you take the long enough view of of history, because I'm I'm sure Walt would have found other ways to continue and and keep going and and do other things, but. The way that the studio was was going, the movies just weren't making enough money for all the reasons that we've talked about in our previous episodes, but they were really coming to a head. And it was essentially a government bailout, even though I would argue the government did get a good a, a good part of that deal. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, this is kind of a complex breakdown because Disney did a lot of things. So Disney had the government contract for 32 propaganda films, as you said. But they went far beyond that with the various different ways that Disney 
kind of represented the U.S. and democracy and freedom and all of these ideas that were central to propaganda at the time. Disney characters were used to represent different combat units, with them either spray painting the characters or getting patches on their uniforms. Donald Duck was made kind of the mascot for several combat units. Snow White represented nurses. Flower the Skunk was chemical warfare, which I find kind of funny. Jiminy Cricket was the chaplains, and it went on and on from there. In addition, free of charge, the company's artists made over 1,200 insignia for military units, including specifically the Women's Air Force Service Pilots and the Flying Tigers. This really kind of exploded. This was on military uniforms, on the planes. It's not something that we see all the time in, like, World War II era movies, but there's what we call the Disney nose art, where aircrafts just happen to have pictures of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and several other characters just on the tops of them. So that when you're getting bombed, or when you're being kind of attacked from the air, you at least know that it is the United States and Mickey Mouse himself doing it. Two just quick thoughts about that. One, my conception of it is always around like pinup type drawings of like, you know, of attractive women adorning airplanes. I wonder if that's because in the movies and things, they obviously are not going to license Mickey Mouse. So like, they're like, okay, we have to use one of the non Disney ones to show. And so like that popular conception has continued, but the Disney one has not in part because Disney typically does not shine a light on this stuff. And then two, I don't know if you've ever seen Full Metal Jacket, but they actually sing the Mickey Mouse Club march while they're in Vietnam. Uh, and so I never, I, I always thought that was a Kubrick kind of like, you know, jab at American capitalism, colonialism kind of thing. But it, it actually is sort of a callback to World War II in, in, in that way, too. We always like to think, especially based on cinematic portrayals, that basically war is all about like camo green and dirt. And those are the colors of everything. But there was definitely a lot of color and a lot of American capitalist commercialism, especially with Disney. Some of the other things that we saw in that time period, in 1943, the company allowed the Treasury Department to feature 22 different characters, such as Donald Duck, Bambi, the dwarves, etc., onto war bonds, uh, war bond certificates. And they also signed a $90,000 Navy contract to make 20 training films on topics like how to spot enemy planes. And while many of those ended up being more or less strict animation of how to spot planes, just as many things brought in these really kind of recognizable Disney figures. So when we're talking about how the company grew, a lot of people really know about how Cinderella saved the company or how the Renaissance updated the company, but most people don't really think how much World War II did for it. Specifically, according to some sources, upwards of 90% of Disney's work by 1943 was connected to the war effort, whether that was propaganda films, just merchandising, whether that was specific training features. They really kind of sunk their teeth into everything. And while said, at least, that he felt really bad about the idea that anyone should profit too much off of war. So the vast majority of this was done at cost. 
Now that meant that still everyone was getting paid, and I'm sure Walt was getting paid fairly well, but they were doing this in a way that theoretically wasn't meant to make the company rich as much as help the company survive until it could make itself rich again with full-length movies, which it was always kind of hoping to get back to. Yeah, it was definitely a lifeline, and I I appreciate, for all of its faults, I appreciate Walt not becoming a war profiteer <laughs> uh, through through all of these programs, but I, I think it shows Walt's Walt's own sense of patriotism, as well as you know his his desire to want to be useful and helpful, but also finding a way to keep the company going at the same time, and it it really was. It, re- it really seems like a win-win arrangement for both National Defense and Walt Disney Studios. I wanted to talk about a few of the selected shorts because as interesting as it is that Victory Through Air Power exists, the film itself is not super interesting. So I thought that bringing in some of the probably actually more well-known wartime shorts would be an interesting kind of way to, to give a fuller picture of this time at the studio. There was a mix of what the DVD release calls entertainment and education focused shorts and so two of the education focused shorts were the thrifty pig and the seven wise dwarfs uh these were these were designed to sell war bonds in canada uh while you know canada being connected to britain britain already being involved in the war canada had reached out to the disney company to help sell war bonds and so these both are maybe two two and a half minutes long One features the three little pigs with a lot of reused animation from that short. uh, And the other features the seven dwarfs going to a bank. And the thrifty pig uh, is probably most notable just because uh, we had talked in our first episode about the wolf being depicted as an anti-Semitic stereotype. And here he's given a Nazi armband. (laughs) So there's there's a little bit of irony, I feel like, to the depiction in this one. Uh, And then the seven wise dwarfs, it's just interesting to see even though the, the animation itself is reused from Snow White, it's actually repurposed pretty well. And the new drawings added to it do sell the idea of the dwarfs are off to go buy war bonds instead of off to mine diamonds. And so it's just also interesting, like, the, you know, Disney has such a huge stable of characters at this point, even by the time you get to the 90s, and then the 90s adds a whole bunch more, and they haven't really stopped since. But it, it's interesting to kind of think of a time when, the three little pigs and the seven dwarfs were like right behind Mickey and Donald in terms of popularity and notoriety. There's something kind of significant about the fact that the seven wise dwarfs, which is kind of funny because they still mock Dopey throughout it. It really starts by reusing that initial footage. This is a clip we know. This is them mining the gems. And they specifically say, They don't know why they're mining the gems, which is potentially a bit of a harmful stereotype about, you know, so-called dwarfs in real life. I'm not sure. But it then transitions well into, if you have money you don't know what to do with, here's the thing to do with it. But it also adds in the idea that it's a thrifty thing to do. For every $4 you put in, you get $5 back. And it really kind of transitions these classic characters into the war in a fairly natural way. I mean, it sticks to the original song, just changing up the lyrics. It seems to kind of flow into the world in such a way that we could imagine this is just a clip we never saw from the original. 
And along those lines, in The Thrifty Pig, uh, there's a little bit of extra an- added animation when the wolf tries to blow down the brick house. The bricks peel away to reveal war bonds are actually holding the house together. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is cute. And I think, you know, it, it sort of, it feels like an advertisement more than anything else. You know, and obviously animation has a long history in advertisement, especially on television and before that. The second one I wanted to bring up was Donald Gets Drafted. Uh, So this was the first of what became a six-part series about Donald in the army. And Pete, often depicted as Mickey's nemesis, as his, like, drill sergeant, commanding officer, etc., through each of the shorts. And seeing the two of them bounce off each other is actually really fun and a really good dynamic because they are both sort of, like, blustery characters with short fuses. And so I, I do think they play off each other pretty well. We do find out Donald's middle name, which is Fauntleroy. So you can tuck that away for your next next bar trivia night in case that ever comes up. It also introduced the song The Army's Not the Army Anymore by uh, Carl Barks and Lee Harline. That song becomes a sort of recurring motif throughout these six shorts where sometimes Donald will be like singing it to himself or another character will be whistling it. So it's interesting that that song became popular enough after this short where they sort of kept bringing it back as a kind of a weird running running gag or, or leap motif. Harline worked on the songs for Snow White. Uh, He's one of the people who won the Oscar for When You Wish Upon a Star. This was some of his last work at Disney before moving on to other projects. And then Carl Barks had a brief time at Disney, was ultimately frustrated by working there because he felt sort of constrained because he was a, he was one of the, the middle step animators. So he would draw the drawings in between the better animators drawings and, you know, he just, his he felt his crea- creativity was stifled. And so he eventually leaves. He becomes very well known for the Donald Duck comic books. And so he's ultimately, like, he's the one who comes up with Duckburg. And he invents Scrooge McDuck and really builds out the whole, the thing that becomes DuckTales eventually in the 80s. That concept goes to Carl Barks. He was nicknamed the Good Duck Artist because those comics at that time were also not super credited. So you would see Walt Disney's name on it and not anyone else. And it took, it took fans and enthusiasts once there were fans and enthusiasts in the sixties of like noticing that like, okay, this has to be the same person because it's the same drawing and writing style. And like, they were able to actually piece together and track him down. Uh, And he is one of the initial entrants into the uh, Eisner hall of fame for comic book artists and writers. So he becomes a, a very big deal, but it is interesting that this is one of his, this is the time he was actually working at Disney and not working on Disney characters, but not directly for Disney, working for the the comic publisher that had licensed Donald Duck from the characters. And there's another one of the kind of war bond shorts where a prototype version of Scrooge McDuck shows up as the sort of thrifty angel on Donald's shoulder. And then there's a spendy like character and they're trying to, again, encourage Donald, like don't throw your money away by buying frivolous things, buy war bonds instead as a way of saving your money in the long term. There's a lot of anti-war satire here, especially around recruitment that I found very surprising and very interesting. Apparently that comes from Barks. And I'm actually surprised they were able to get away with this kind of satire at this at this point in time in 1942, where they really are trying to get everybody they can to join the military. 
think that there's definitely in Donald Gets Drafted and then one of the later Donald in the Army shorts, uh, The Vanishing Private, essentially we just keep seeing Donald kind of just does what Donald does and the military ends up getting foiled at every attempt to kind of get him in line. And this kind of ends up coming across as anti-military, to me at least. In Donald Gets Drafted, he is, you know, completely incompetent. You know, he's trying to stay at attention and in failing so miserably through having ants crawl over his entire body, he ends up just shooting and stabbing everything in sight, which is kind of terrifying to me. And even later on in The Vanishing Private, which is not openly necessarily mocking the military, he's still kind of mocking his commander by being able to kind of accidentally fumble his way into mocking them. So it's definitely interesting to see this kind of interplay between supporting the military in, you know, the fact that Donald is not a competent soldier, but certainly a proud patriot, I would say. And then just absolutely mocking the way that the military is actually run. It's kind of an interesting interplay that changes drastically in some of these other sketches that I just find kind of interesting to see what they could get away with and when they had to very strictly, you know, America is good, the military is good, rah, rah, fight for them. There's a couple different flavors of propaganda that we'll talk about today. And I think both Donald Gets Drafted and The Vanishing Private, the latter of which is my favorite of the six Donald wartime shorts, because it's just the funniest to me. There is one where he wants to become an aviator, which is obviously funny because Donald can fly. And like, even in Donald Gets Drafted, he has a line where he's like, I come from a long line of of, of aviators. So they, they get some good mileage out of Donald just being a duck. These and then there's a couple of Pluto shorts as well that I didn't find particularly funny. I struggle sometimes with Pluto as a protagonist as opposed to like Mickey's dog. I feel like these are really targeted at the kids and I'm going to say wives and mothers, the people going off to war, sort of kind of reassuring them about military service a little bit. That that's the thing that sort of makes the most sense to me as opposed to like, I don't think this is actively necessarily trying to recruit people, but I think give a sense of like comfort and humor to those who are not serving. In Donald Gets Drafted, we see him kind of walking to the draft office and seeing all of these posters, which is hilarious because they're spoofing propaganda in a propaganda piece. (laughs) But I like that as he goes through, he sees a lot of humans in the drawings and he's like oh these uh you know these gorgeous human women are amazing and i just wonder if when they use humans it's where disney characters would have been in the actual posters obviously the appeal of pinup girls was a very real thing in world war ii and the recruitment efforts but i just i am curious how many of those posters would have had Disney characters, given what we've already talked about of the presence of Disney as kind of like a promoter of military service and war bonds. Yeah, no, I think that's very interesting. And all throughout these shorts, Donald and Pete are the only Disney characters and all of the other characters are human other than like the ants that that you mentioned. So like everyone that he's serving with you know, the, the guy at the recruitment office is, is a human. There's one where uh, Donald's trying to sleep 
and the military band is is playing in their sleep from their tents and you know they have human feet at least which is mostly what we see of them and so there's a few others I, I wanted to mention. Um, the other one that falls under the sort of like entertainment one is Victory Vehicles, which is a goofy short from 1943. It's a variation on the how-to, but kind of twisting the formula just a little bit. It's really talking about the rubber and gasoline rations and providing a humorous way as people try to find alternative methods of transportation. There's one that I really love where it's someone standing on a mobile putting green and hitting a golf ball and the golf ball powers a wheel that then drives the vehicle uh, which is really fun and then it ends up with a bunch of gags around pogo sticks i love the the song about the pogo sticks i feel like that (laughs) should have like actually just made it that should have been one of the classic disney songs we all come back to because it's it's like oh yeah not only do you not have to worry about gas shortages but it's fun and you can feel like a kid again and you can enjoy being out in the fresh air and it's just it's one of the few shorts in this time period that doesn't have super problematic elements it's just the idea that when there are shortages maybe we should all use pogo sticks or unconventional vehicles instead of cars and i would love to see like an environmentalist version of that today where they're like ah well we are using up all our non-renewable energy sources. Let's look into some other ones and just bring back some of these vehicles for that. I I did, in my research, come across someone very vehemently declaring that the magnet and roller skates would not work as a way (laughs) of, of moving something forward, but I like to think that it would. I agree with you. That song is very catchy and and very fun. And, And that's one of the reasons I included this on our list, because I was like, this is a, it was cool to see them take a very serious wartime message and get a lot of humor out of it without actually undermining the message at all. It still drives home the idea of, you know, yes, we're all going through these shortages, but there's a good reason why. I mentioned the prototype Scrooge McDuck before. I also wanted to call out that in Private Pluto, which is the second Pluto wartime short, Chip and Dale show up for the first time ever. So they're two chipmunks. Dale's nose is still black and not red, and they look pretty much identical, but they are basically pretty much full-fledged uh, Chip and Dale, and they will start popping up in those shorts occasionally as a Pluto antagonist, but more often as a Donald Duck antagonist as we get into the late 40s and 50s. The last two I wanted to bring up are maybe the most aggressively propaganda-based of all the ones I watched and are probably two of the most famous ones. So they're both from 1943. Uh, One is Der Fuhrer's Face, which was also during production named Donald Duck in Nazi land. And so in this, Donald has a nightmare of living in Nazi Nazi Germany. Uh, We do see a train that resembles Casey Jr., which is an interesting touch. There are a lot of swastikas in this short. There are trees there are clouds, there are, it's anything you can put a swastika on or draw as a swastika, they basically did, which is kind of horrific. It gets, some of these hold a slightly different light today, knowing what we all know about what was happening behind closed doors in Nazi Germany and things that were only sort of rumors or not really discussed uh, at the time, which is a topic that we will probably touch on today, but not go deep on because there's a lot to unpack there uh, that is beyond the scope of this podcast. 
But I found this pretty effective overall. It's notable for being the only Donald Duck uh, film to receive an Oscar. Uh, I won the Best Animated Short at the 15th Academy Awards. Uh, he was nominated eight other times for his other work. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that because in one of these shorts, uh, Donald lists his occupation as actor, and so what we're seeing is Donald the actor <laughs> play play this out, but not necessarily this is actually happening to Donald. He's just acting in these shorts. Anyway, in 1994, it was voted number 22 of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time by members of the animation field, which I find pretty interesting, given especially the next one that we're gonna talk about. It's mostly focused on Nazi Germany. There are a few characters and references to Japan, and they are just insanely racist caricatures. That it pops up a few other times. There's another short that's about that's about naval warfare, and the Japanese ships are drawn to look like caricatures of Japanese people. Here it it's just there's really no excuse for it, you know, and I think it's probably pretty obvious as to why the Japanese people were drawn as sort of grotesque figures while the Germans are just drawn as sort of stupid white people, I guess, for lack of a better term. You know, there, there's some stereotyping in there when it comes to Germans, but it doesn't only, it, it's not anywhere near to the extreme uh, that the Japanese depictions are. This is one of, but not the only Disney propaganda film that is just so many irredeemable factors to it when it comes to the Japanese. As you said, they kind of just present Hitler as an idiot or as a bad guy, but they don't really represent the Japanese as even human. They're also staged as, at best, a stooge to Germany instead of a force in their own right. And there's a specific quote from Brian Naya, who says, I was struck by the fact that the Hitler character looks somewhat realistic, while the Hirohito character doesn't even look human. You see this in much of the imagery of the Japanese in this time period, where they are sometimes even explicitly made into animals. Similarly, the white band members at least look human, while the one Japanese character barely does. This is something that's extremely common in that era, and we've talked about it a little bit, and we'll talk about it more, but there were a lot of kind of complex things happening with race in the United States, because we really wanted to present ourselves as being morally better than the Germans. That's one of the main features of this, although this focuses more on kind of the treatment of the everyday citizen in Nazi Germany. What they were really trying to sell us on was that the United States was not racist, as we talk about a racist cartoon, that they were not nearly as bad of people as Nazi Germany was. Specifically, we see this in the efforts to build goodwill with Latin America, and we also see, some, see this in something that we will discuss in some of our later films, where they were trying to argue for civil rights in the United States, specifically for Black Americans, as a way to prove that we aren't racist bigots and anti-Semites like the Germans were. Of course, we were. Um, I, I don't say this to just say that we were a terrible country, but it is fact that a lot of Nazi Germany's ideas came from us. And in an effort to kind of rebuke that. We tried to make big claims that we were absolutely not like that, nothing like that at all. 
And yet somehow that did not extend to Asian people who could just be stereotyped and sent into our own literal concentration camps. Long story short, if you just did like public school education, you probably got the lesson that the United States was a great, wonderful place that saved the world from bigotry. And that is very not true. And this is just one of those cartoons that really shows off that even when they were putting so much effort into not being racist, they just couldn't help themselves in being racist anyway. You know, I definitely thought about the Japanese internment camps whenever the Japanese stereotypes come up. There's there's another Donald short that we're not talking about where he is sent into, Donald becomes a commando in a jungle and you can probably fill in the rest from there and whatever you're thinking is probably pretty accurate as to what's depicted in that cartoon. I do appreciate the way that this attempts to contrast Germany and I read from a couple of reviewers that this also feels very much like a precursor to the anti-Soviet propaganda that we'd be putting out uh, shortly after the end of the war uh, in terms of the conformity, the working conditions. There is a very funny conveyor belt gag here, which is an homage to Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, a movie very much about American capitalism, and also very reminiscent, Megan, as you pointed out, to the I Love Lucy chocolates conveyor belt scene. And the thing is, like, the racism aside, there are many funny gags in this short, and it is very effective propaganda in terms of creating fear of we have to beat the Nazis because life is going to be unbearable for everybody if we don't. And I do think that that's pretty effective. But overall, I I didn't find, I don't find this one. I I don't find it as moving personally as the next one we're going to talk about, which is education for death, the making of the Nazi. So this was based on a book by Gregor Zimmer, who was an American uh, living in Germany during the rise of Nazism. And you know, n- neither of these shorts mention anything about the anti-Semitism or the treatment of Jewish people in Nazi Germany. This one at least does take on Nazism as a ideology and portrays it as a sort of nihilistic death cult that's like fairly empty, uh, which I think is actually really effective, you know, and showing a young boy kind of conditioning. There's a whole metaphor about, you know, do you sympathize with the the fox or the rabbit, which was a thing that was actively used in German schools under Nazi, uh, under Nazism as a, it's like a true, like bread and butter fascist metaphor. And they bully this kid into being like, well, the rabbit is weak. It deserves to die. All of these kind of walk the fine line of like not lumping in all Germans as Nazis which I have mixed feelings about in general, but it shows like the parents are losing their boy to this like crazy ideology. And it it kind of paints this tragic picture in a way, but I actually do think that overall it's, it's pretty effective. Yeah. I think that this is a really kind of interesting depiction because it's very much connected to some of the research that scholars are doing today into how does a population become so desensitized that something like the Holocaust could happen, despite the fact that it never explicitly mentions Judaism, as you said, and it actually explicitly suggests Nazism as a threat to Christianity, with the burning of the Bible and the breakdown of churches. 
It also does prove that the United States knew about the massacre of the disabled in Germany. So it's an interesting kind of balance of knowing how bad this was and yet not talking about what we often consider to be the worst parts of it, thus being the Holocaust. Specifically, I think because in kind of contemporary times, the Holocaust has overshadowed World War II as its own kind of existence. Meanwhile, at this point in time, they were really focused on World War II. How does a German soldier get created? How does a Nazi get to the point they're willing to get to? And it does a really good kind of idea of putting into play how propaganda works and how easy it is to kind of convince children to give up on even their most deeply held kind of sentiments for other people and the well-being of those around them. I think it is also interesting, sort of like the Donald Gets Drafted cartoon, it is propaganda that's also depicting propaganda, which is kind of interesting. It's just showing you the effect of propaganda. There was also a Chicken Little adaptation uh, kind of in the series where it was portraying Chicken Little as someone who was ignoring the threat of, of the fox that was, you know, manipulating him with ideas about the sky falling and upsetting the power structures within the chicken coop society, which was, it, it was okay. Um, <laughs> not one of my favorites, but I think this is really powerful in a similar way to the, the parts of Victory Through Air Power that are really persuasive because it is sort of rooted in fact. And then vividly depicting those facts with animation. I found that to be really persuasive. There is a comical part, sort of the beginning, that takes a similar track to Der Fuhrer's face around retelling the like Sleeping Beauty myth and making Hitler look dumb and kind of showing how idiotic the Nazi ideas are. But my hot take on this is this short is more effective at doing the same thing that Jojo Rabbit is doing, but Jojo Rabbit is like 10 times longer. <laughs> One thing for me about watching these, because you suggested several for me to watch and I just kind of did them in the order that I saw them, is that they seemed in some cases to be aware of the fact that they are making propaganda, and in others they seem to be so blind, not to compare Nazism to the US explicitly, but that they are so critical of the Germans for having propaganda as they are creating propaganda. And for me, this came across very clearly in a short that the Treasury Department had actually commissioned from Disney. The Treasury Department decided that they wanted Disney to sell the American people on paying their taxes, which resulted in the cartoon The New Spirit, uh, which came out in 1942 which essentially showed Donald Duck ready to do anything to fight the Germans and the Japanese, to fight for America, except being kind of hesitant about actually paying taxes. But I guess kind of the fervor that they ignited in the American spirit and how patriotic every man should be, it, it troubled me with kind of where the line is between the very extreme hyper-patriotic propaganda in the United States and the condemnation of propaganda in the Axis powers. Yeah, I, I do think that is an interesting lens to look at this through. You know, I think ultimately, 
at some point you have to bring in like what is the goal of the propaganda <laughs> into the equation and you know at the very least you know m- most people consider <laughs> world war ii one of at least maybe one of the only just wars or wars that were f- actually fought for a good reason whether we knew at the time we started it or not but what's also funny is like i have a memory of der Fuhrer's face sort of leading into the new spirit like donald duck wakes up and like here's the radio and he's like all fired up because he had this dream about being in nazi germany and so that that's because he has that little bit of like how proud he is to be an american at the end I couldn't find anything pointing to where that was an actual thing. Like maybe I had just seen them back to back wherever I had seen them previously. Cause I had, I definitely remembered watching them before I did as research for this episode. But for whatever reason in my mind, those it's the same, that's the same story. So like Donald has this bad dream. He wakes up and he's like, I'll do anything to fight the Nazis. And his radio's like, well, you should start by paying your taxes. And he's like, I mean, I guess like, you anything know, but that. um, Right, which is, you know, the American way. (laughs) That's a good point. I actually think that that makes a lot of sense with those being connected. I have a feeling that it was probably aired on one of Disney's many reissuing of shorts that they were kind of put back together, back to back there. And I I do want to just point out, because I'm aware that I'm coming across kind of arguing both sides. I, I am not arguing for the Nazis here. (laughs) but i i do think that occasionally we see some of these propaganda pieces especially as we go into the ones that are overtly racist against the japanese where it seems like we are specifically arguing against the germans for you know the holocaust completely justified we should not uh you know approve of them doing that and yet also putting out propaganda about how inhuman the Japanese are and how we need to lock them up into camps. It just, that's that's a contradiction that I, I really struggled with as I was watching these. Yeah, I, I think that that is totally fair. And I didn't learn about the Japanese internment camps until I was in high school. And I feel sort of lucky that I had a teacher who was willing to talk about that stuff as part of my as part of my education because it's still something that's not really talked about my my last note on the new spirit is i i after watching it i'll probably have taxes to fight the axis in donald duck's voice stuck in my head for probably <laughs> the rest of the week because it is kind of a weirdly catchy phrase especially in clarence nash's donald duck voice which i will not attempt to replicate because i cannot i enjoy that slogan and i also enjoy the really specific way like it this short made it seem like this was like the first time Americans were like filling out their income tax forms by themselves, <laughs> which they're like, it's so simple, you know, and uh, I keep because of the season in which we're recording this, you know, it was weeks of like TurboTax and H&R Block commercials about, you know, let us do your taxes for you. And I was like, no, my radio will will teach me how to fill out my tax form. <laughs> You know, I, I also approve that it, it holds up Donald as a, a positive example of a single parent because uh, he has apparently adopted Huey, Dewey and Louie within the context of this propaganda cartoon. Mm-hmm. One more thing before we move on to kind of the meat of this podcast. I know you're saying we're about an hour in. How are we not to the meat yet? But we are, in fact, going to talk about one specific movie. But just one more thing that I wanted to kind of mention before we move on as 
kind of a contributing factor to how these presentations were put together was the fact that there actually were several Japanese-American employees working at Disney while all of this was being put together. Specifically, we know that animators Chris Ishii, James Tanaka, and, and Tom Akamoto all worked for Disney prior to Pearl Harbor and were among the Japanese-Americans who were incarcerated. We're also aware that there was a prominent Disney illustrator, Gayo Fujikawa, I am so sorry if I'm butchering these names, who was actually moved from California to New York specifically to avoid the Japanese internment. So just as kind of in addition so that you guys all have the context for kind of where all of this was coming from and what was going on in the studio, those issues specifically with the Japanese and the Japanese Americans were very prominent even within the workings of the company. Yeah, I absolutely appreciate that note, Megan, and shining a spotlight on that because it's it, it should be front front and center. As much as these are about clownish and cartoonish Nazis, Nazis are sort of inherently cartoonish in their own, in their own deeply disturbing way. I think still that the Japanese treatment by Americans doesn't get quite talked about quite as much. So moving on to the feature film, Victory Through Air Power, as we mentioned before, it was based on the 1942 book of the same name by Alexander P. D. Seversky, who is prominently featured in the film. It's sort of his lecture with the intro about the history of aviation and then his lecture segments interspersed by animation illustrating his points. The film was personally financed by Walt Disney with all of his his $40,000 a week take-home pay. <laughs> Because he felt so personally strongly about the subject matter and really wanted to sort of provide an argument and a, and a platform for this argument about military air power. And again, this sort of dovetails with Walt's ongoing fascination with, you know, technology and, and transportation. And, you know, there's no warplanes at the Disney parks, but there are a lot of trains. And, and I think this sort of points to Walt's Walt's sort of innate love of industry and transportation and technology and, and science kind of rolled together. And another thing that's kind of interesting is we do actually have stories about how this came to be, how Walt decided to go from his last major kind of passion project, which was Fantasia, to a military handbook, as odd as that was. And as far as we can kind of tell, there was a Disney employee, Eva or Ava Jane Kinney, who had essentially gotten to know Victory Through Air Power because it was a book club selection. She read the book, she brought it to Dave Hand, he wrote up kind of a memo on it for Walt, who then read the book, and according to Diane Disney, he then essentially said, and this is her quote of him. Well, gee, if they're going to go out and try to use battleships and all those other things, I just didn't believe it would ever work. So Walt really felt so compelled by the book that he felt essentially that U.S. and the Allies would fail the war if they did not kind of take this guidance into mind, if they didn't put extra power into the Air Force, which leads to kind of why he was willing to finance it himself when the company was at a very dangerous stage of its history. 
Yeah, and it, it's so funny to think of, like, a private citizen basically just being like, look, I feel very strongly about this idea, and I'm going to make a whole movie to argue my points, and I want to get it into the sort of cultural conversation around everything that's going on. I think it's very fascinating. Because of Walt's personal passion around this project, again, similar to Fantasia, uh, he basically puts his best people on it, or the people who are, you know, left after the strike at this point, including Ward Kimball, who I should also note, uh, as, I, as I'm as i about to read this quote, is also one of the people who collected old model trains and railroad paraphernalia and introduced Walt and sparked Walt's love of trains. So it's no surprise that he says... I felt I was fortunate in having the most fun on the picture because I got to do the historical stuff. I was fascinated with old airplanes. I've always loved odd, old flying machines. And I just thought it was a lark animating the first Wright Brothers flight and the early battles between the Germans and the French. I did a lot of authentic research. And this is one of the least surprising Ward Kimball quotes I could have ever read based <laughs> on what I know about him. And so it's it's just nice to see someone so succinctly sort of sum up their interests and the fact that he's getting to work on probably an unexpected topic for working at the Disney studio when you're most known for flying elephants and dwarfs and the three little pigs. So this was definitely one of those situations where Walt was willing to put everything he had on the line. As Jack Kinney would later quote, we had the best animators on in the business on victory through air power. They were going to put everything they had on it and had a kind of surprising source of pushback, specifically through the U.S. Navy. So the U.S. Navy heard that Walt was going to try and make a movie out of this, and they specifically reached out to him because they felt that it undermined the war effort and that it specifically mocked them. And to be fair to the U.S. Navy, it did. The original book was very kind of mocking of the traditional forms of warfare, and specifically those branches of warfare. In order to kind of appease them and listen to their feedback, as well as probably get more future income out of them, Walt actually took out any parts that had already been made or that were sketched out that mocked other parts of the military, which helped it to be more accepted openly in its final form. It certainly still has some areas that feel kind of submissive to at least other countries. Uh, the British and the French are really looked at as kind of like, oh, they were so naive. They just didn't know any better. But it was not actively antagonistic towards the other military branches, which was certainly helpful in allowing it to spread within the military cultures. And I will say the Navy may be a little short-sighted because, as we all know, on March 3rd, 1969, the United States Navy established an elite school for the top 1% of its pilots. The Navy calls it Fighter Weapons School. The Flyers call it Top Gun. <laughs> so the Navy is known for their planes and actually it supposedly has more planes than the Air Force at any given time. And so I think the Navy was also just being a little bit short-sighted in that. I'll push back a little bit because I do think the Brits come off pretty well, especially in the section around where they point out how many more guns the uh, Spitfires had than the German planes that were flying, which I think leads into why Churchill was so positive <laughs> on this movie. And a little bit of research I did suggested that it was much more well-received in Britain because I think it was sort of validating their approach to the war uh, compared to, to the United States. 
And then the form of this is again one of the only one of the few examples of limited animation in Disney's feature films. Uh, so sort of like uh, the Baby Weem segment of the Reluctant Dragon, where there is a, some animation, but there's also sort of you know this limited animation where it's either a still image with only arrows moving across the screen, or it's morphing from one image to another, you know, or from you know, a map to a map in a lecture hall to the live action segments. And it is, there are parts that are fully animated and I would argue beautifully animated, but there are also a lot of, you can kind of see where, you know, it, it doesn't quite have the polish of Bambi and it's not quite as flowy as Dumbo. It's sort of finding its own style and almost all of the segments are a little bit different which at least makes it kind of interesting <laughs> to watch because it does get kind of repetitive. But yeah, it, it is it is one of the other few examples of limited animation within Disney's feature films. This is my my key positive argument towards this. Disney finally figured out how to draw fire because they had to because this film is full of fire and explosions. Like half of the animations, especially in the latter half, are just dropping bombs on people. But I will say that this is a grievance if you've been following all of our episodes that I have had on many films that Disney didn't know how to draw fire. And I do think they succeeded in that here. I know that's such kind of a a small point in comparison to some of the other things we've talked about. But I like to always point out these kind of little things. Another quick fun fact before we go to the release is that about an hour into the film, Seversky actually uses the phrase the United Nations, which didn't exist at that point in time. The name had been tossed around a couple of times, but the UN, as we know it, didn't exist yet. So kind of like some of the things that we see in the early movies where they coined terms and phrases that became kind of ubiquitous. I'm not going to say this movie popularized the phrasing the UN but it certainly is one of the earlier examples of it in kind of a popular entertainment framing, which I just find to be kind of an interesting tidbit. I always love tracking language and the way that we talk about things. And it's it's very different to talk about the allies versus the Axis and then to reframe it as the United Nations versus the Axis, where they really are. In our last episode, we talked about South American sentiment at the time and how there were people across South America who were sympathetic to the Nazis or at least interested in what the Nazis had to say. And I feel like that term here and and elsewhere sort of tries to reframe it as like, look, these three countries are causing problems for everybody and we all have to band together to defeat them. Whether or not that was, you know, a hundred percent true or not kind of, again, doesn't matter because it's, it's about telling that, that good story. One of the other interesting facts about the release of this movie is that RKO, who was the main distributor of the Disney Studios output at the time, refused to release it in theaters. And so Walt went to United Artists, who distributed a lot of the shorts. So Walt went to United Artists, who had distributed a lot of the shorts in this period to have uh, it released. United Artists being sort of different from the traditional studio model, as it was founded by actors and directors who were prominent in Hollywood at the time. And they had a lot more leeway in terms of what they would put out. Uh, but that makes it the first and only Disney animated feature to be released by a studio that was not RKO or Walt Disney Studios itself. 
while we don't really know why specifically RKO didn't want to put it out, there's actually very little information on that. I assume it's just because this is a very weird movie for Disney. This wasn't entertainment as much as it was propaganda and a literal military handbook. Um, it had kind of an interesting contemporary reception where a lot of sources seemed to enjoy it, at least artistically. The public didn't seem to really care for it, but it actually had some fairly significant impacts in the political sphere. Two specific examples of contemporary critiques of it I will give. Both are from New York Times articles. One says, in a fairly positive look on it, On purely cinematic terms, victory through air power is an extraordinary accomplishment, marking it, as it were, a new milestone in the screen's recently accelerated march towards maturity. The result is a delightful and stimulating combination entertainment-information film. If victory through air power is propaganda, it is at least the most encouraging and inspiring propaganda that the screen has afforded us in a long time. Mr. Disney and staff can be proud of their accomplishment. Now keep in mind, this was released July 17th, 1943, so it was after Disney had been putting out a lot of those other propagandas that maybe weren't as entertaining and inspiring as this one was understood to be. However, not everyone agreed, specifically because this comes across as a very authoritative source. It claims that it is accurate about the history of aviation and that it is absolutely correct in the correct military strategy, which some people had some issues with. Specifically, James Agee is quoted as saying that he hoped, quote, Major de Seversky and Walt Disney know what they are talking about. For I suspect that an awful lot of people who see victory through air power are going to think they do. I had the feeling I was sold something under pretty high pressure, which I don't enjoy, and I am staggered at the ease with which such self-confidence on matters of such importance can be blared all over the nation without cross-questioning. This was certainly something where it was Walt Disney deciding he believed in something and really just sending it out to anyone who would listen. And that is not something that anybody other than a major entertainment head or a very rich person had the luxury of doing. It's interesting because on the one hand, it's not like the book wasn't widely available. It was a book of the month club selection. So like the idea was out there long before the movie actually came to fruition and was able to be seen by the public. I don't necessarily disagree with uh, Agui that it is very authoritative and it is very pushy about what it believes. And I did a little bit of not fact checking, but I was just curious about what parts stuck out to people. And we'll talk about them in a little bit. But but what I think I, I do think it's also interesting just, you know, how long it takes to make one of these. But it's really surprising that the book came out in 42 and this movie came out, you know, basically less than a year after after the book was published. Like that's. Not quite as quick of a turnaround as the reluctant dragon being brought to Walt as an idea. And he was like, oh, guess what? We already made a movie about it. But it's pretty <laughs> close for for animation. <laughs> so when we're looking at that, it was kind of this popular book that was heavily debated. And then this movie that was not very popular to the public. It It wasn't a failure necessarily, but it just 
it's a very odd movie for everybody to be flocking to the theaters to see. So they didn't have that kind of overwhelming urgency to see it. But it does have a kind of complicated legacy in that it has a short-term legacy within the military and then more of a long-term legacy as to how Disney changes it and plays with it in the future. Yeah, and, and I just want to take a, a quick moment to talk about the impact in England because at the time of its release, that the argument within was sort of being played out in a positive way. And like I said before, it was sort of validating to England and, and their strategy for the war and, and them using planes. Like Dunkirk is used as a positive example of air power within the movie you know, as well as the power of the Spitfire in general and their ability to push back against the Luftwaffe. So there's, there, there is sort of a precedent for the English people going like, yeah, these, like, Disney gets it. They get what we're, we're kind of going for with our, you know, trying to stay alive during the incessant bombing. There was one, there's one scene that shows a fictional rocket bomb destroying a fortified German submarine pen. And according to, you know, legend and anecdote at this point uh, it directly inspired the british to develop a real rocket bomb to attack those kinds of targets that were heavily protected by thick concrete and it's supposedly because they got the idea from this movie the weapon became known as the disney bomb and it did see some limited use before the war ended because you know these things take time to develop and and prove out but it is interesting that the disney bomb (laughs) was something that came out of this movie so it was a British thing, so I don't know if there was a Disney bomb that was ever dropped by a plane with Mickey on it, but I like to think that there was. Seems entirely possible, given all of the connections that we've seen. The impact in the U.S. is a little bit more complicated because Disney and those connected with Disney and Seversky definitely want to believe that this movie had a major impact, but the dates don't necessarily add up. So there's some question as to how strongly it impacted it. For instance, according to Leonard Maltin, it directly changed FDR's way of thinking, specifically that the United States made the commitment to long-range bombing after FDR saw the film. However, the Allied combined bomber offensive had already begun before that, so there's some question about that. There's also some discussion of the fact that The Quebec Conference in 1943 was a situation where essentially all of the forces were arguing over how they were going to handle the air forces and how they were going to attack. And when they kind of came to an impasse, Winston Churchill asked President Roosevelt whether he had seen the American film Victory Through Air Power. According to the legend, he said that he hadn't, and they flew the film to Quebec They watched the movie together, supposedly twice, and then they suggested that the chiefs of staff viewed it. And from that point forward, they were able to kind of clarify what their goals were, especially with air power moving forward. This is a myth that is heavily attached to this movie. It's kind of our big Disney myth for this movie, but it's a little bit questionable as to whether it is Whether it ever happened, whether it did, but it was already after the U.S. was believing some of this, or whether it's basically completely fabricated. Similarly, as we move out of the war and we get into the post-war demobilization, General Hap Arnold uh, was supposedly a big fan of the film and uh, actually borrowed uh, the film 
to draw on for a speech that was to be delivered on November 5th, 1947 by a senior staff officer, sort of arguing in favor of a separate Air Force, which did come about in that same year. But again, whether or not he would have just borrowed the book if the movie didn't exist, <laughs> maybe, you know, is is an open question. But uh, it is it is interesting to see that there are at least some military people that took it seriously enough as a film, which is very interesting coming from Walt Disney <laughs> to actually be part of the conversation around uh, military policy and strategy. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of standing out to me and stood out when I was watching this is that essentially through this whole saga, there's the idea that the United States and the British were kind of working together to put in practice these air offensive strikes, whereas the French were kind of too late to come to that idea. They were already taken over. But there's really no discussion of the Soviets, which is a very interesting thing, given that Seversky is Russian. And it plays into this really kind of complex interplay of how World War II connected to the future Cold War and how Disney factored into all of this. By this point, Disney was already convinced that communists were evil and were destroying everything because he personally believed that uh, the communists were the only reason that the Disney strike happened, which was a bit of delusion probably on his part. So we see that while the Russian front is shown in the movie, they really don't talk about the Soviet and their impact on the war much at all. And likewise, the Soviets don't really talk about this movie. There's no evidence that they changed their strategy based on seeing this film. Yeah, I did also think about that when they were showing the sort of, you know, how Germany is so close to its own front lines that they don't really have to worry about, like, shipping things overseas. And I wonder if the Soviets are sort of the same way, where most of that fighting is happening relatively close to their centers of industry and so there isn't as much need for air power, especially because they weren't, they also weren't as involved in fighting in the Pacific, which, you know, there's a whole section of this that is really dedicated to like the problem of how do we actually defeat Japan, which I'll talk about a, a little bit more uh, towards the end because there's some interesting implications uh, in that part of the argument. Uh, the other point I want to make about Walt's appreciation of Seversky is that he emigrated from Russia during the 1917 revolution, um, which probably gave him some brownie points with Walt in terms of his uh, anti-communist stance. But uh, m moving on to the, the sort of longer term legacy aspects, uh, after its release in 1943, and then again in 1944, there wasn't a theatrical release for uh, at least 60 years. It didn't really become part of the main, you know, Disney brand or the Disney rotation, you know, but it did have a big impact on the company in terms of things that they were doing. So it was one of Disney's first major educational videos, uh, which led to a future in both documentaries and propaganda, as well as, well, if you want to call it corporate propaganda, you can, but they, uh, they did a lot of corporate commissions for various companies, uh, both during and immediately after the war as a way to, again, pump cash into the studio. One of the things that we see is that while it did definitely influence that kind of push into educational videos and documentaries and propaganda, Disney doesn't like to talk about it. 
Specifically, this is probably because of, well, what we talked about earlier. There was a lot of racism kind of connected to all of this. And frankly, the movie just wasn't that successful. While it has kind of its big myth of influencing World War II military strategy, it didn't really make any particular impact on the public. And whether you kind of understand it to be that the movie wasn't successful or that it was so successful it was no longer needed, Disney didn't really feel the need to talk about it. That was until actually last year. So 2022, there was a, a exhibition put together called the Walt Disney Studios and World War II, which was being displayed at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. According to the resources that I was specifically looking at, the traveling show, which started at the Walt Disney Family Museum in 2021, it really went through how they fell into propaganda and really explored how this movie came to be some of the obviously more inappropriate things that came out of it. And supposedly this was going until February of this current year of 2023. So it seems interesting that they were finally bringing it back right as we were heading into the 100 year anniversary. D100 is kind of the big thing now. I know, Ryan, that you saw that traveling exhibition, but specifically the fact that they kind of dealt with their World War II stuff recently, but maybe kind of separately. I was kind of curious if there was anything in the show that you saw that referenced this movie at all, or if it was kind of all put into this side exhibition. Yeah, there wasn't anything direct. The, the closest was mentioning the South America trip, which is sort of tied into the wartime stuff in general, but it, it, it didn't really spend a lot of time on it. If you're listening to this relatively close to the time that we're uh, recording and putting this episode out, that Walt Disney Studios and World War II exhibit is now at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans through September 24th of 2023. If it ever gets closer to me, I will definitely go see it because I think, I, I think it's really cool that they're actually putting this stuff out because it really there there really isn't a ton of there isn't a ton of information directly from Disney about this. Most of what there is has been written up by other people. Our sources are an interesting mix of people who are into animation history and people who are into military history, but I still think seeing some of the first the the sort of primary sources if you will would be really interesting. This doesn't really come up in Disney history until very recently. The history of aviation scene has been kind of included in several of the Disney anthology series on TV. In 2004, the film was released on DVD as part of the Disney Treasures collection, as you had said, uh, but it really doesn't show up that much other than that. It's not one of these movies where we immediately see 50 rides at Disneyland based on it. As a person who especially grew up in a family that has a lot of interest in World War II history, would ride that ride. <laughs> Some of the the more maybe indirect legacy is this sort of does give a kind of template for a lot of the way that the Disneyland television series is constructed. So often there was a live host in the form of Walt Disney. Other times he would also have a guest with a live action guest with him in the studio. Werner von Braun shows up a few times when talking about space travel, for example. 
maybe more to come on that on another day. But that format of mixing sort of animated segments with live action introductions or education and sort of breaking things into pieces like that definitely feels a lot like the Disneyland TV show in some, you know, sort of a precursor to that in in some ways. And that history of aviation was also available to theaters as a separate like 16 millimeter print that they could like order and run as a short before other things that they were playing. And again, somewhat connected to it. And part of the reason why Disney doesn't bring this up because they do talk about their worldwide audience of children. And this is not something that kids really need to see or is appropriate for kids or would change their perception of, of things, which I think is a more convincing argument around you know, the Donald Duck wartime shorts than it is around the uh, victory through air power. I just don't think it would be interesting to most kids. But I will I will note that both Germany and Japan have pavilions at Epcot. Uh, and so the Walt Disney Company's relationships with those countries has obviously changed quite a bit because the uh, countries are directly involved with how those things are presented in Epcot. I will say that I think of all of the wars that we have gotten into, except probably the Revolutionary War, World War II did, in the long term, end with fairly amicable relationships with the countries afterwards. The United States and Japan have had a fairly positive working relationship, and Germany has done a lot of work to acknowledge and repent for World War II and the Holocaust. So I think that there's definitely something to be said for the fact that the United States doesn't still see them as enemies, whereas most wars, you don't really kind of kiss and make up that quickly. Yeah, it also helped that we completely replaced both regimes that were in power at the time. But that's, again, that's beyond the bounds of uh, of this podcast. But but no, that is, that is absolutely worth noting that, you know, we have definitely... We've made allies of Germany and, and Japan very forcefully and purposefully immediately after the war. And so even by the time Ep- Epcot opens in like 1982, yeah, 1982, they are fully in in the Disney family of nations, shall we say. And I do think that one thing to bring up just in the long term kind of legacy of this movie, not that this movie was, again, the first place to talk about this. But Victory Through Air Power very much has the idea that if we make enough big weapons and we tell everyone in the world that we can obliterate them with one thought, then we don't have to worry about enemies anymore. That was very much kind of the vibe that was given off here, that the goal is to build up the military as big and strong as possible and publicize that. And I think that that strategy has very much remained in play with the military-industrial complex and is especially pervasive in conservative thought. Going through the Cold War and into today's wars, although technically we don't call them wars, because we still have kind of this idea that as long as we build up the military stronger and stronger, we will never have to feel like victims again. Obviously 9-11 is kind of a counterexample, But I think that we very much see, if not the origin of that sentiment, a very strong artifact of that sentiment in this movie. A sentiment that really has not changed in the nearly 100 years since this came out. I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, once, obviously, once you get into deep into the Cold War, especially once you get into 
Vietnam and other kinds of warfare that maybe that argument, again, may or may not hold water depending on what your point of view is. But uh, I do think that the that sort of industrialized war, one of the main arguments behind victory through air power is the idea that soldiers are tech are often safer in aircraft than they are on the ground. And if we have more aircraft and can dominate the skies, we will save our own lives because we'll be able to more efficiently kill our enemies, which is, I mean, it's hard to argue that logically, that's more of an ethical question, perhaps. But, you know, I think the logic behind it as presented in the movie is fairly airtight. I think on that point, there's one more thing that we haven't talked about much that maybe wasn't caused by this movie, but we definitely can see somewhat foreshadowed here, which is the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This movie basically argues that the best thing we can do to end the war is use planes to bomb the enemies at major power points. And while that was largely understood to be at military bases at the time, the concept of bombing civilians certainly becomes part of American military strategy. And I think that we can see the mounting of that, especially in the end of Victory Through Air Power. We get this kind of very clear visual of the bald eagle attacking the octopus, which was mostly kind of understood to be the Japanese forces, was sometimes understood to be the Axis powers as a whole, with this idea that they repeatedly said that we will not have this war on our soil, it will be on their soil, and that if we can kind of take back, not really take back, if we can overtake the Germans and the Japanese with air power, we will be able to obliterate them enough that people will stop dying, which is very much the same argument we get with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That by doing so, no matter what civilian loss of life there was, it stopped the war from continuing. And I think that we can very much see kind of that strategy building in the perspectives that are seen in this movie and in the book that it's based on. I almost like sat up when they brought the map of Japan up and they're like, okay, you know, like Germany is a pretty small country, all things considered, and it's really easy to get to from like Spain and North Africa and Scandinavia and England and France and, and the Soviet Union. Like we, we kind of had them surrounded, especially if we have, you know, planes that are able to, we already have planes that are able to reach Germany from places that we've already taken over. Whereas Japan is far enough away and has conquered enough of the Pacific islands surrounding them that it's going to be really costly to either go island by island or try to like invade China from the West and move towards Japan, try to establish bases to bomb Japan from there. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is that, that line of thinking that this is that argument of, you know, we need to develop a plane that can fly a thousand miles and drop a bomb, drop a single bomb that is going to end the war. Like you can see how we get from A in this movie to B in actually, you know, developing and dropping the atomic bomb, which I, don't know, and I didn't have the chance to look as to like how widely known that concept was. Obviously, the the project to build it was top secret, but I don't even know conceptually if people knew that that was a thing that was even possible. They do talk. There's a whole segment in here about 
we have to build bigger and bigger bombs and bigger planes to drop those bigger bombs. And I was like, eventually you get to the point where like the bomb sort of maxes out where you're, (laughs) you're causing a lot of, a lot of damage, but it's, it is all about that argument of like, we need to extend the range of our planes and the payload they can carry because it's going to be so costly to fight Japan island to island or through mainland China, unless we like start trying to bomb them from Siberia. Saversky also has an argument around the Aleutian Islands, uh, because technically that is the part of the United States that is closest to Japan. But from the from the looking I did to into the veracity of that argument, that was a point that was called out as being specifically ridiculous because the flying conditions over the Aleutians are notoriously terrible, actually. And so no pilot would want to be stationed <laughs> in the Aleutian Islands if they didn't have to be. And there was a lot of risk about like losing planes to weather more so than being able to get to Japan uh, efficiently. Just tacking on to that, on the point of how accurate this was, as pointed out in the contemporary reaction, they make this seem like Saversky and Disney know exactly what they're talking about all the time. And as far as I can tell, a lot of the history of aviation is correct if you only look at the U.S. and very Western Europe, uh, specifically like France and England. For instance, Italy and Bulgaria were already using planes to bomb and had the first bombers in 1911 and 1912. So to some extent, they were ignoring anyone that wasn't a major player in that stage of World War II when they were looking into their history. This wasn't a concept that they came up with out of nowhere. Other people were doing it. So there is that limitation. And to be completely honest, I have never had an interest in military history and don't know how much of these strategies themselves are accurate. But it certainly seemed to be a film that decided it knew what the truth was, even though, as we've pointed out, there's at least a couple of points where that doesn't quite work. Yeah, and and I do think overall, the film is very persuasive in the points that it's making. And at the very least, the ideas are compelling. Again, whether I'm not going to be pretend to be any kind of expert on any sort of military strategy. But I do think, you know, showing the supply lines, showing just the geography of like where the US is and where Japan is and where Germany is. And, you know, all right, well, we got to go through the Panama Canal or through the Suez Canal. if We're going to ship these things by boat and help out our allies and stuff. I do think that stuff is compelling. And I think the visuals sell it probably more than it would if I was just reading the book, I'd be like, okay, like whatever. But, you know, I I do think the animation does really add to the force of the argument. And I don't know if I consider it a hard sell, mostly because I watched this through like a historical lens more than a, all right, Disney, try to sell me on the idea of air power. But I, I did find it a compelling watch. Like I said, as someone who grew up around people who are very interested in military history and just my own general interest in history in general like i watched this twice for this it was the second and third time i've i've seen this movie and you know it's not it's not one that i'm gonna be like oh i'm gonna have a fun relaxing time with the disney movie let me throw on victory through air power but for my own interest you know despite like i said it it gets a little repetitive but i do find it just a fascinating kind of artifact and even with the limited animation there's some amazing 
art in this movie. Like towards the end, again, the, the eagle octopus battle, I think rivals the uh, T-Rex and Stegosaurus fight in Fantasia uh, in terms of the, shall we say, fight choreography <laughs> between the two. You know, the scenes of the men on the ground as they're like trying to get the planes to take off and it's it's raining. You know, there's a lot of great use, I think, of motion and light and color. And it, it is it is very well done visually. I also think they improve the humans a lot for this. There's a couple shots where they're like very impressive looking human beings. You know, when we think back to still at this point that like Snow White and Pinocchio are the only movies that like prominently feature main human characters in them. And I think, you know, that this moves it even further in terms of like some of the pilots that we see in the detail and the realism in the, you know, posturing and the facial expressions and things. I think that particularly the beginning is very effective. The history of aviation, whether it's accurate or not, is engaging. It's enjoyable. It's fun to watch. It's well drawn. As it goes on, it, as you said, gets repetitive. I think that I personally got to the point where I was like, okay, I got the point 20 minutes ago. We're good. The last like five minutes, they just show explosions nonstop, which was a bit much for me. But I think that, like you said, it was very persuasive. The visuals that they put together are extremely compelling. They make it very clear. Okay, cool. We have all the ground resources. We're perfect. We're in great shape oh no, they went over us. It's very similar to people who like to joke about the build-a-wall uh, immigration points where people are like, cool, that worked when we walked, but there are planes. So I think that it had some really compelling parts. I think that its structure could have used a lot of work. There's about four different introductions to this movie, and perhaps that's just this specific composition, but going between... The history of aviation, which had that classic Disney storybook opening, having just text on the screen that you need to read about the history, having, okay, now it's a lecture from Seversky. There were just so many different kind of starts to the argument that it, in my opinion, did not have a good flow. And that, I think, contributed as well as just kind of narration as a whole being not great as kind of the driving force of your movie towards being fairly boring and less successful as an engaging story for the everyday person. That being said, artistically speaking, I do think this is complicated enough. Some of the better artistic work that we've seen out of Disney in this time period. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Like I said, I have an affinity for the subject, which I know goes a long way for my personal engagement with the, the movie. And I think outside of out, you're right, outside of Bambi, you know, this is the best post Fantasia work that I can think of. It's a little inconsistent, but I kind of like that there's different visual styles because again, it just makes it more interesting than if it was just kind of a, a lecture on its own. I know you had a a story about one of the Disney employees that you wanted to share to, to bring us out of this episode. For those of you who have been listening, this has been a slightly disjointed episode because there's just so much to talk about and so many different angles and perspectives. But one thing that I have really appreciated about our podcast is kind of amplifying attention to some of the employees at Disney. 
We talk a lot about Walt and there's a lot to talk about, but there's a lot of other people that are really significant and interesting. And for Victory Through Air Power, I think it's particularly interesting that there was a prominent Disney animator who was also a pilot and was presumably around while this was at least being begun. So her name is Grace Huntington. She joined the story department in 1936 as one of the first women to be working at Disney after being recommended by Ted Sears. She's most well known for her impacts on Snow White and especially shorts that had to do with Mickey and Minnie. So all of that started in 1936. She was really influential in kind of those early days, which of course meant that she got absolutely no credit in the actual final presentations. But while she was doing that, she was also focusing her attention on air power. She got her pilot's license in 1937 as one of the first female pilots in her region. She then set altitude records in 1939 and 1940, specifically creating new breakdowns of her plane so that she could go higher, go longer. She specifically, I believe in 1940, was flying straight up. She knew she was close to breaking the record when the plane started breaking and all of her kind of control panels, all of her gauges stopped working, which is a terrifying moment, I can only imagine. And rather than immediately turning around and landing safely, she kept going to make sure that she crossed the line. She landed and knew that she had just barely crossed it, and she actually ended up breaking it by a significant margin. So that's just kind of a closing, kind of related story that I wanted to bring to you all of a Disney employee who really was connected to all of this, who may have even been partially an inspiration for why Disney was so interested in planes to begin with, because he did have a major figure working at the company who was involved in setting some of these records that are brought up in that first History of Aviation section. And to quote a much later movie released by Disney, Higher, Faster, Further, Baby. <laughs> That's a, that's a great point for us to end on. <laughs> Next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, a return to South America, where Donald and Jose will round out their group as a trio, the three caballeros. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about the show. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and to Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.